Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 28th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Local Cat Shelter looks out for forgotten members of the Jeffco feline community by Joe Davis for the Jeffco transcript. Mount Evans is Mount Blue Sky by Chris Koberl for the Jeffco transcript. Ein Prosit Cowpokes Wild West Oktoberfest returns as primary Golden Civic Foundation fundraiser. For the Golden Transcript. Jackalope Arts Festival returning to Old Town Arvada for a third year by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. And Council Candidates Debate Local Issues. Crowded Field shares stage at the first public forum of Campaign Trail by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Local Cat Shelter looks out for forgotten members of the Jeffco feline community. By Joe Davis. The Cat Cares Society, a nonprofit Lakewood cat shelter, recently won a four star rating for its work as a nonprofit. Charity Navigator has designated Cat Cares Society, located at 5787 West 6th Avenue in Lakewood, as a Give with Confidence charity for, quote, using donations effectively. The designation is a boon for Cat Cares Society. However, the nonprofit's service to the community over the last 42 years already speaks volumes. The shelter's executive director, Aaron Claire Michaels, explained that Cat Care Society has been serving Jeffco felines and their owners since 1981. We initially were founded by a veterinarian and a colleague who really just saw the need for additional outlets for cats, Michaels said. She went on to say that in 1981, there was a significant gap in outlets with knowledge about care for aging cats and those with medical issues. Michaels said that the illness FIV, or feline immunodeficiency virus, was one of the illnesses that made cats ineligible for being sheltered. The Cornell Feline Health Center defines FIV as a virus that compromises the feline immune system and leaves the cat vulnerable to a host of illnesses. Michaels said that the stigma attached to FIV left cats and their owners without much in the way of care options for decades. Cat Care Society was a place that took in and treated cats with FIV while educating owners on the realities of the virus. About 40 years later, shelters in the U.S. changed policy to do the same. Now we say that dog behavior is about 10 years ahead of cat behavior. In a lot of ways, that's the same thing in general, sheltering and adoption, Michael said. The shelter works to help other cats with issues issues that make them unfavorable for adoption. Our vision, our mission, is taking cats that didn't really have an outcome elsewhere or that people didn't think were adoptable necessarily, and just demonstrating that all cats, regardless of their history and their medical needs, are adoptable, Michaels said. In addition to being an open space for cats, the shelter also supports programs such as Nibbles and Kibbles, 
a food pantry that serves only cat food and supplies, according to Michaels. And then we also have our temporary care program, Michaels explained. That's been around for quite some time where we offer space for owned cats whose owners are in a time of crisis. We believe that every person deserves a pet in times of crisis. Your pet can be your lifeline. And so we have the opportunity to offer space for cats while their owners are going through a crisis. So that owner knows that their child is safe, that their care, their cat is getting excellent care. The shelter itself is unorthodox, allowed, designed to allow an open space for the cats, their owners, volunteers, and people looking to adopt. We're very different than the traditional shelter, Michaels said. We are cage-free or an open space. So the majority of our cats are not in kennels. They're in larger rooms that offer them space. This also means that space for the cats that are in medical need. There are some cats that may need a smaller space, Michael said, so we make sure that we're monitoring, getting the medical care they need. But cats do not want to be in a small space, and so our offering an open space really allows their stress levels to go down. Michaels thanks the Cat Care Society donors and volunteers for the support to operate in such a capacity for the Jeffco feline community. What I've been so amazed by during my time here is the really strong sense of community cat carers has. That we have just amazing donors and supporters, Michael said. And that allows us to really adopt some cats that are considered very challenging. She explained how those challenges are not barriers to adoption. What we find is that the cats are not challenging cases because their personalities shine through. They meet their matches with their people, and some of the things that people are sort of afraid of from a medical perspective go to the background because the cat shines through. For more information on Cat Cares Society, its new four-star give-with-confidence status, and more, go to catcaressociety.org. Mount Evans is Mount Blue Sky by Chris Coburn. Applause erupted from the crowd as they listened to a federal board's decision to rename Mount Evans in Colorado to Mount Blue Sky. Some of those cheering were listening virtually as the U.S. Board of Geographic Names voted 15 to 1 in favor of the name change. Three members abstained in the vote, which took place in Oregon. This was the final step in the renaming process, said Cheyenne and Arapaho Tribes Governor Reggie Wasana after the vote. The name change takes effect immediately. Wasana said he was glad that he what, glad what had become a long, drawn-out process over the name of more than fourteen of the more than fourteen thousand foot peak in Clear Creek County ended with a solid vote. It is a huge step not only for the Cheyenne and Arapaho people, but also for other allies who worked diligently to begin the healing process, bringing honor to a monumental and majestic mountain, Wasana said. The new name for the mountain comes from the Blue Sky Ceremony, a ceremony for all living things, including men, women, children, plants, earth, water, life, Chester Whiteman of the Southern Cheyenne Tribe said. Months-long delay on expected vote to rename in March. In an unexpected twist, 
The U.S. Board on Geographic Names deferred a vote that would have changed the name of Mount Evans back in March. At the last minute, the Northern Cheyenne tribe objected to Mount Blue Sky and requested a formal consultation, according to William Walks, a tribal administrator. That set in motion a series of discussions culminating in a meeting between tribal leaders and the Department of Interior in June. Several other names were suggested, including Mount Sewell, Mount Rosalie, Mount Sisti, and Mount Cheyenne Arapaho, according to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. In the end, the board voted on only one name, Mount Blue Sky. Changing its name was long and overdue, and I think I thank the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes for leading this effort, said Jim Ramey, Colorado State Director for the Wilderness Society, a nonprofit conservation organization. History of namesake Governor John Evans. Indigenous groups say the mountains celebrated an era of terror. The mountain was named for Colorado's territorial governor from 1862 to 1865, John Evans, who played a role in enabling the Sand Creek Massacre. Anytime you have to hear of or speak of an individual who wanted to decimate your family or your tribe, it's really hard, Wasana said in a November 2022 Clare Creek Current article. On a November morning in 1864, U.S. Army Colonel John Shivington and elements of the Colorado Infantry Regiment of Volunteers and Regiment of Colorado Cavalry Volunteers launched an attack on Arapaho and Cheyenne civilians where they camped about 180 miles southeast of Denver. Over the course of eight hours, the troops slaughtered some 230 people, many of them women, children, and elderly according to the National Park Service, which maintains a National Historic Site in the area where the events occurred. In 1895, the mountain was named for Evans, after settlers lobbied the legislature to honor him. Quote, We are grateful for all of the efforts of tribal nations to make this much-needed renaming a reality, said Native Lands Partnership Director Starlin Miller. May the mountain be a place that no longer inflicts sorrow and grief, but rather a place that brings comfort and healing. Ein Prosit, Cowpokes. Wild West Oktoberfest returns as primary Golden Civic Foundation fundraiser. By Corinne Westman. After testing the waters last year, it seems Wild West Oktoberfest is here to stay. Yo, Colorado and other golden businesses revived the community's Oktoberfest last year with a Western spin, and proceeds benefited the Golden Civic Foundation. The original Oktoberfest was founded in 1978 as a GCF fundraiser and ran annually until 1993. After last year's pilot event, GCF took over as organizer and moved the celebrations from downtown to Clear Creek parking lot off of 10th Street. The Golden Civic Foundation has wanted to move away from its gala-style fundraiser, which has run for 47 years and instead hosts a larger community event as its chief fundraiser. Starting this year, that'll be Wild West Oktoberfest. GCF Director of Community Impact Julie Bartos said, The nonprofit sold out its September 23rd Bavarian Banquet, with more than 500 community members enjoying a night of cowboy-themed music, 
polka-style dancing, stein-holding, competitions, and more. The September 24th celebrations were similar, but open to the public with discounts for local groups like Colorado School of Mines students and Coors employees. Bartos felt like this format worked well, with the VIP event Friday night and the public family-friendly one Saturday afternoon and evening. Thanks to last year's proceeds, the foundation was able to support 37 local nonprofits, Bartos said. This year's fundraising goal was $250,000 to support projects like Foothills Art Center's forthcoming Astor House Campus. Bartos thanked Coors, Wild West Oktoberfest's title sponsor, and all other businesses and community members who donated their time, products, or other resources to make it happen. She hoped the event would become an annual celebration of Golden's German, Western, and beer cultures. P.J. Coors also thought Wild West Oktoberfest was a great way to bring the Golden community together in the fall. He said the Coors Brewery put together a special Oktoberfest-style beer exclusively for the event and liked how this year's location allowed more room for all the vendors and activities. He said Coors wanted to support GCF's efforts and commended the nonprofit for all its work, saying, quote, they know where the need is in the community. Golden having fun. In the Clear Creek parking lot, there was a strong mix of Bavaria and the American West on display. Some attendees wore dundel dresses and lederhosen. Others donned cowboy hats and boots, and several had apparel that was a mix of both styles, which they showed off in the men's, women's, and couples' families' costume contests. Attendees also tested their strength while stein-holding competitions and displayed their dancing prowess during everyone's favorite polka, the chicken dance. Under the beer tent, Golden Lions Club volunteers Wendy Renee, Janice Waring, and others were serving a thirsty public. The two said they enjoyed everyone's costumes and the event's sense of community. The previous night's Bavarian banquet had gone well, they said, as the attendees were very eager to support the event and a good cause in the Golden Civic Foundation. Waring said the auction was especially spirited and hoped the rest of the September 24th celebrations would have similar energy. Out enjoying the sunshine, Genesis, Gwyn, and Todd Davidson said there was no way they'd miss a local Oktoberfest. The two had just attended Breckenridge's and were excited to attend Golden's after missing it last year. They enjoy seeing all the costumes, sampling the food and drinks, and being immersed in the friendly and happy Bavarian culture for the day. Jackalope Arts Festival returning to Old Town Arvada for third year. By Riley Dunn. Local artisans and makers will have a chance to build community and peddle their wares as the Jackalobe Arts Festival, an annual gathering of handmade-only vendors, is set to return to Old Town Arvada from October 13th to 15th. The festival, which charges no admission and is free to the public, will start with a preview night on October 13th to give folks an idea of what to expect throughout the weekend. Preview nights will also feature a Halloween parade and scavenger hunts for children in attendance. Jackalope co-founder Melissa Kahout said Old Town is a great site for the festival, which returns to the historic district for the third time this year. 
What makes Jackalope so unique is it is handmade only event, Kahoot said. We really strive to have artisans there that you can meet and build that connection with what you're purchasing. Old Town has the perfect community vibe, perfect to bring makers and community out so they can shop small and support local. Old Town Business Improvement District Director Joe Hinksler said the festival is part of Old Town's mission to engage artists. Local to Arvada Artisans, Arvada Ceramics Guild, Herbal Riots, and Reverie Rose Designs will take part in Arvada's main commercial district. We're so excited for the Jackalope Arts Fair is coming back for its third year in Old Town, Arvada, Hinksler said. It really helped to put Old Town on the map as a place that values small artisan vendors, and we believe this event brings a unique experience to the area. Kahoot said the event is perfect for folks looking to have a free weekend activity or get a jump on some holiday shopping. It's a perfect free and family-friendly activity to do during the weekend, Kahoot said. It's got a little something for everyone, whether you're looking to get holiday shopping done early or just something for yourself. Council candidates debate local issues. Crowded fields share stage at first public forum of campaign trail by Riley Dunn. Arvada City Council candidates share the stage for the first time at the Arvada Chamber of Commerce City Council election forum at Revive Church, a long-standing event that for some marks the public-facing start of the campaign trail. The September 15th forum featured nearly all of the candidates who will be on the ballot in the November 7th election. In attendance were mayoral candidates John Marriott and Lauren Simpson. District 2 candidates Shauna Ambrose and Michael Griffith. District 4 candidate Bob Pfeiffer and at-large candidates Sharon Davis and Bob Loveridge. District 4 candidate Jessica Finsk attended the Chamber's Candidate Boot Camp, a training program meant to mentor potential future civic leaders, but could not attend the forum. And at-large candidate Kathleen Kennedy also could not attend, according to Arvada Chamber President Cammie Welch. All candidates participated in a moderated discussion, which included opening statements, specific questions on local issues, quote, a speed round, and closing statements. Mayoral candidates... Marriott and Simpson, both sitting council members with Simpson currently representing District 2 and Marriott representing District 3, shared why they would like to move into term-limited Mayor Mark Williams' seat this fall. Marriott, who was born and raised in Arvada, said that he is seeking to lead the city in order to allow current and future residents to have the opportunities he's had. I want to be mayor of Arvada because I want to ensure that all of you and your children all have the same ability to reach your potential and beyond, like I clearly have, Marriott said. I also want to make sure that we set things in place to make sure that the children who are not even here yet have things that I didn't have. Simpson, who works in diplomacy for the Canadian government, said her four years on council have been the best four years of her life and wants to earn the mayor's seats to help curb toxicity in municipal politics. What made me run for office was the toxicity of our politics, Simpson said. Everything seems kind of broken right now, doesn't it? Everyone is at each other's throats to the point where it ruins relationships. What we need fewer of is spiders, and what we maybe need a little bit more of is diplomats. 
The pair of candidates also shared their thoughts on what the mayor's role should be, with both pledging to work on to make council a collaborative body that works well together. Marriott and Simpson both credited Williams' leadership style as an example to replicate, with Simpson going as far as to pledge that if elected, she will uphold Williams' tradition of letting other council members speak first. At large. Candidates for the at-large seats, which represents the whole city, Sharon Davis and Bob Loveridge, shared their views on different issues and discussed why they feel like they are the right candidate for the job. The pair divulged slightly on a proposed land for affordable housing, with Davis suggesting a public-private partnership and Leverage suggesting an amendment to legislation that would make it more amiable for builders to enact condo developments. We are building luxury homes that are $1.2 million and so forth. If you're starting out, you cannot afford that, Davis said. I would like to see a public-private partnership where we encourage the diversity in housing stock as we're moving forward. We need to change the construction defects laws so that we can start building condos, Leverage said. The other thing we need to look closely at are the fees and development fees and codes that we are requiring from our builders. They are huge factors because that goes right into the cost of that building. We need to have that diversity, and there are plenty of ways to accomplish that with what we do on council, Leverage continued. Leverage, who has served as a board member with the Arvada Fire Protection District since 2014, highlighted his experience working in the community as a reason why he believes he is the best candidate. I bring the experience and knowledge of this community, and I love people, Leverage said. I love working with people, and that's something that would continue on city council. Davis said she, wouldn't, she would be a voice for the residents who don't feel like they are being heard by council. Arvadans are compassionate, they're kind, they care about the community and they care about one another and that is dramatically important to me because I didn't know what to expect when I started door knocking, Davis said. I want to represent you on council. I want to be the person on council who represents those who don't feel like they're represented on council and don't feel heard. District 2 District 2 candidates Shauna Ambrose and Michael Griffith discussed why they were enticed to run with Ambrose discussing her first-hand experiences with social service and mental health legislation, and Griffith highlighting his experience as an urban planner and how that would be help build regional partnerships. Ambrose shared her experience with homelessness and financial insecurity and credited policymakers who mandated social workers go into schools to assess families in need for helping her escape a cycle of poverty and abuse. I'm running for public service because I want to give back to the community, Ambrose said. Policymakers who care decided that social workers should go into schools, that the child and the whole family should get help. We were all made whole because of smart policy decisions. Griffith said that his experience in planning would help the city through important land use decisions looming in the next couple of years. I had to build partnerships to make those projects happen. In my experience, practical experience would be useful on council as we make major land use decisions that will affect the quality of life for generations, Griffith said. The candidates appeared to disagree slightly on their stance on whether Arvada should allow recreational marijuana sales, 
which the city currently does not. Ambrose argued that the city is missing out on tax revenue, while Griffith cited a recent downturn in cannabis tax revenue. Both candidates suggested raising the issue to voters on a future ballot. At this point, the city is missing out of funds that the surrounding areas are bringing in by not permitting a few of these types of establishments in Arvada, Ambrose said. I also think that for Arvada to be solvent and continue as a great city, it needs many diverse forms of businesses in order to have a good return on sales tax, which is where the city is funded. I think that this is one of those areas we could develop, but I think there should be a vote to the people and they can decide if, when, how, and how many, and where we want these stores, Ambrose continued. Griffith added that, Uh, Several areas are underfunded, especially in pavement. If you think about the potential here, I think the large wave of opportunity with retail marijuana sales and tax revenue may have crashed. Griffith said, that's just my opinion. I don't know if this is something the community really wants. I agree. It should be put up to a vote. District 4. Community at-large council member Bob Pfeiffer was one, the lone District 4 candidate rep- to pre- present at the forum. He said he wanted to represent the western side of Arvada because as a resident of Candelas, Pfeiffer understands the distinct needs of the community. It's the new Greenfield area of what we can make our community and find a sense of place and a sense of community, Pfeiffer said. It's different than east and west, and it does have different needs. It's at a different altitude and different demands on the city, and I understand that. Pfeiffer said the three main issues facing the west side of town are transportation, wildland fire protection, and metro districts. Pfeiffer said he is in favor of staying the course on current infrastructure plans for the area. Infrastructure we're talking about is not sexy, Pfeiffer said. It's underground. It's invisible. But it's necessary for our community to have a high quality of life. When we talk about the sewers, we're addressing those. Water, we're addressing those needs. The upcoming municipal election will take place on November 7th. Where to draw the line? Jerry Fabianic, columnist, Local Voices. In a 1919 decision, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote an opinion that has become part of the American secular dogma. One cannot shout fire in a crowded theater if there's no fire. His ruling was in the context of a specific case, but its impact has had profound implications for American jurisprudence and culture since then. One way to consider limitations on personal freedom is the approach to approach it from opposite, excessiveness. There are those, I suppose, who would relish a Mad Max, take no prisoners to society, but I'll assume you're not one of them. That would mean we agree about the need for limits, but where those limits should be remains a matter of ongoing debate. That's part of the fun of being a citizen in a liberal democracy. We all get a say. In my August column, Read with Pride, I wrote about the crusade to censor literature books in public schools. In an email, one reader queried me about where I draw the line on certain books, my position on diversity at the upper level of education, and my thoughts on attempts to shut down conservative speakers on college campuses. 
I was pleased to get his note. It validated one of the functions of a free press to serve as a literary public forum. His queries challenged me to clarify my position and to take provide my take on the ancillary topics. Given we're still in Band Book Month, I thought it would be fitting for me to share with you my responses about whether there ought to be lines that prevent young minds from accessing inappropriate materials. Of course. But the challenge in a pluralistic democratic society is deciding on which topics and at what age. As the old adage goes, the devil is in the details. At the high school level, I primarily taught freshmen and juniors. When discussing certain works with my juniors, like To Kill a Mockingbird and The Scarlet Letter, in which sex was an essential element, rape in To Kill a Mockingbird and outside of marriage, pregnancy in The Scarlet Letter, we could discuss them in a sophisticated way. But I wouldn't have had similar discussions with my freshmen. We sell our high school youth, especially the upper-level ones, short by forbidding, banning books that might make certain readers queasy. Further, by banning those books, censors are dictating to parents comfortable with their kids reading books like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye and Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison, How to Raise Their Kids. Many working to ban books dealing with trans and gay topics conflate being trans or gay with moral depravity, sin. But sin is within the domain of religion, not government. Those who hold such beliefs are free to instill that moral code into their own children, but they do not have the right to tell others to abide by it. That's what they do in autocracies and theocracies like Iran. Also, we live in a very different time with its accompanying zeitgeist than even a couple of decades ago. What were once taboo topics in the larger society often aren't taboo. The truth is, Pete Buttigieg is the Secretary of Transportation, and he has a husband, not a wife, helping him to raise their children. Teachers are caught in the crossfire between the banned books and the open-minded. In teacher training, one of the primary notions instilled in prospective teachers is they, we, are in loco parentis. In nearly 30 years of public school teaching and in the years since, I have not met one who did not, does not, take that solemn promise to heart. And they put their lives on the line doing it. How many teachers have lost their lives protecting their wards in the line of duty? I'm not suggesting parents shouldn't monitor their children's reading. Far from it. Responsible parents do. But the best course of action when dealing with or confronted by a challenging situation, such as questionable literature, is to have an intelligent, honest discussion with their kids about with their kids' teachers and with their kids' teachers about it. It's called education. When it comes to shutting or shouting down conservative speakers on college campuses, I'm abhorred by such tactics. A free and open society is dependent on a free exchange of ideas. Further, Colleges are a perfect place for young adults to hone their critical thinking skill sets. Of course, like age-appropriate literature, there are boundaries. There's a difference between conservative scholars and intellectuals like the late William F. Buckley and current rightist ideological flame-throwing posers as intellectuals. By the way, I love telling about the time I met Buckley and shook his hand when a student at Pitt. Even then... I was liberal-minded.
Like the many issues facing us, where to draw the line on which novels should be accessible and assigned to students is a matter of ongoing debate. But it need not be contentious. WFB would agree. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Wins and Food for Thoughts, Essays on Mind and Spirits. He lives in Georgetown. Hard Questions and Healing at the Laramie Project. Coming Attractions by Clark Reader. When a tragedy happens, how do the victims and community at large pick up the pieces? 25 years after the murder of Matthew Shepard, the Wyoming town of Laramie is still grappling with the reverberations of the event. That story is the focus of the Laramie Project, the latest production at the Arvada Center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard. The show runs from Friday, September 29th through Sunday, November 5th. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday, 1 p.m. on Wednesday, and 2 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday. Co-directed by Kate Gleason and Rodney Liscano, and based on hundreds of actual interviews conducted by Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project, the show examines how the college town attempted to contend with the hate crime. The Arvada Center production is getting input from someone who was there at that time, costume designer Nicole Watts, who largely grew up in Laramie and was 14 when the murder occurred. When I tell most people in the theater industry I'm from Laramie, this is the first show they say they ask me about, Watts said. But I'd avoided it for the last 25 years. So when I finally read it, I had a much more visceral reaction than I expected. The fact that she spends so much time in Laramie and knows some of the people depicted in the play provided Watts with the inspiration to get as many of the details right as possible. I went and thrifted at Laramie and tried to find certain touches that I knew from my time there, she said. There are a lot of touches people may not even notice, but I wanted them to be accurate. The community is really the heartbeat of the show, and the humans affected in large and small ways linger with the audience member long after the show is over and especially with the current barrage of legislation against members of the LGBTQIA plus community, the story is sadly as relevant as ever. The show is so well written. It's genuinely a good show on top of my emotional connection to it, Watts said. While I love doing art for art's sake, it really fills my creative cup to say something with my work. Regardless of what you think, you know, or remember about this crucial event, you're going to come away with a new understanding of the people involved and the ripples it created, ripples our society is still dealing with. The play gives you a more complete picture. It's not only about Matthew Shepard and his family, but about the community and how it became a jumping-off point for a national conversation that needed to happen. Watts said, it still needs to happen. Information and tickets can be found at arvadacenter.org slash events slash the-laramie-project. Celebrates a half-century of water media at CAE. The Center for the Arts Evergreen 31880 Rocky Village Drive is celebrating 50 years of its Rocky Mountain National Water Media Exhibition which is on display through Sunday, October 28th. 
The juried show attracts entrants from all over the country and has a national reputation for excellence. According to provided information, the exhibition goes beyond traditional watercolors to include acrylic, egg tempera, gauche, and mixed media, all depicting a vast array of subject matter and styles. Jurors Ken and Stephanie Goldman have juried in 57 works from 23 states out of 500 submissions. All the details can be found at evergreenarts.org. Minicon, big fun at the Lafayette Public Library. Those missing the fun of Denver Pop Culture Con can get their fix at Lafayette Minicon, which would be held at the Lafayette Public Library. 775 West Baseline Road from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday, September 30th. The free events will feature a whole slew of activities, ranging from live-action role-playing duels and arts and crafts to, ex- to science exploration led by the Colorado School of Mines and panels and workshops. This should be an action-packed and informative day, so please visit popcultureclassroom.org events for all you need to know. And Clark's Concert of the Week the Gaslight Anthem at the Fillmore. I'm going to tell this one like a comeback story. Those of us who love their modern rock drenched in the influences of Bruce Springsteen and the Hold Steady were crestfallen back in 2015 when New Jersey's The Gaslight Anthem went on indefinite hiatus. We've survived on lead singer-songwriter Brian Fallon's great solo efforts, but there's no replacing that full band sound. In March 2022, the group announced their hiatus was over, and now we're finally getting history books. A new album on October 27th, and the group is taking to the road again. The Gaslight Anthem will be performing at the Fillmore Auditorium, 1510 Clarkson Street in Denver, at 6.30 p.m. on Monday, October 2nd. They'll be joined by Donovan Woods and Catbite. This will be a real, honest-to-good rock show, so get your tickets at LiveNation.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an e.reader at Hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice I'll be reading Bringing Hip-Hop to Denver Teens by Frank D'Angeli. From Denverite I'll be reading Triangle Bar on Broadway Closes Indefinitely as Owners Blame Encampments by Matt Bloom and A Trip to Denver's Dump Inspired a Book About Humanity's Stuff by Kevin Beatty. From Westward, I'll be reading Overland Becomes Latest Denver Neighborhood to Push Back on Homeless Microcommunity by Benito L. Kelty. And DIA Acknowledges Travel Woes, Adjusts for the Future by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Bringing Hip-Hop to Denver Teens by Frank D'Angeli. Oren Bregman's confidence can be felt through the phone. 
His charisma and laid-back energy create an air of familiarity, almost like we've spoken before. We have not. While I record our call on my ancient microphone and bootlegged audio software, our conversation flows smoothly from music to life and back. Bregman has reason enough to be self-assured. Since his teenage years, he's been making significant achievements in the world of hip-hop, signing to Detroit-based label Trackside at 19. His band, Coast to Ghost, long buzzing in the Denver area, is headed to Detroit this fall to record their second album. Bregman lives and breathes music, and more recently, he's found a way to bring his passion to use in the Denver area. Mobile Studio, a nonprofit organization founded, owned, and operated by Bregman, has been making a concerted effort to give teens access to the world of music production. The concept is pretty straightforward. Bregman drives a large van full of instruments, microphones, and computers to meet kids where they are. And Bregman teaches those kids about almost any musical concept they're interested in. This includes lyricism, vocalization, instrumentation, and recording. Participants are given opportunities to perform their music live or release their songs on streaming platforms, and many branch out from the program to make music on their own. Bregman came up with the idea for Mobile Studio through unrelated nonprofit work in Northeast Denver schools. Some of the kids we worked with out there were tremendously talented, Bregman said. I thought, wow, what a shame that they really don't have musical resources or access to a studio. Somebody should really be bringing the studio to them. With years of experience in hip-hop production, Mobile Studio seemed like a no-brainer for Bregman. According to Bregman, the cost barrier to music production is real, with many projects requiring a computer, microphone, and expensive software to get started. But in Bregman's experience, this is a kind of music through which kids prefer to express themselves. Being able to make music, specifically hip-hop and rap, is so refreshing to them, Bregman said. They don't want to play the trombone, they want to do this. According to Bregman, outside of the cost of equipment, hip-hop can be an easily accessible art form. You don't need classical training, you don't need a grand piano or a teacher, Bregman said. If you know how to count the beat, you can teach yourself. He also noted how hip-hop, a historically black art form, can be an empowering form of self-expression for the teens he works with, many of whom are black or Latino. Bregman recalled being moved by a song that one of his pupils wrote about the Black Lives Matter movement, calling this a magical moment to witness. According to Bregman, the genre itself innately draws passion and truth from its creators. It gives students an outlet to speak out loud on things that are personal to them, to let their voices be heard through an exciting musical platform. He also said that hip-hop's historically supportive culture allows this free expression in a tolerant environment. Bregman said his favorite part of the job is witnessing the kids he works with discover their passions for music. For me, a milestone is the first time somebody creates their own song and hears it and thinks, wow, that's me, Bregman said. He works to foster the creativity, leadership, and communication that students find through collaboration with one another. Over time, you just see their confidence grow. They know how to record. They know how to make music collaboratively, which is really impressive, he said. According to Bregman, when it comes to the future of mobile studio, he's thinking big. 
getting more equipment, going to more schools, maybe we'll get another vehicle. As a longtime sole employee, he's also looking to bring more staff aboard. Bregman said, I've been doing this myself for a couple of years now, and although it's been really successful, hiring would be the next step. Mobile Studio is currently in the process of revamping its website and social media profiles, and Bregman said he plans to capitalize on the momentum that Mobile Studio has generated so far. Who knows, maybe one day you'll see Mobile Studio all over the country. These next two articles are from Denverite. Triangle Bar on Broadway closes indefinitely as owners blame encampments by Matt Bloom. The owners of Triangle Bar Denver, one of the city's oldest LGBTQ bars, abruptly closed their doors on Thursday. Visitation had dwindled in recent months, owners said in a written message sent to patrons. Management blamed nearby encampments of unhoused people as the main driver. We confirmed that 75% of you are visiting us less frequently, with over 60% citing safety concerns due to the encampments, owners wrote. We've been injecting funds regularly into the bar just to keep the doors open while pressuring the city to take corrective action. The closure marks the end of another chapter for the storied bar that opened in the late 70s. It gained popularity among the city's leather and kink scene and served as a safe space during the height of the AIDS crisis, said Sean O'Grady, a previous co-owner. It was a wild place, O'Grady added, and I think it was one of the few bars that actually cared about being part of the community and being there for them. The original business shuttered in the late 2000s, after the then-owner died. Ownership changed hands a few times since then. In 2017, a team of business partners, including billionaire Scott Coors of Coors Brewing, purchased the space and reopened it as an LGBTQ bar and restaurant. The revived space hosted a mix of parties, performances, charity events, and brunches featuring elevated food, O'Grady said. Events like its annual Pride Block Party and weekly beer busts drew large crowds. But the COVID-19 pandemic cut its momentum. The business took a hit from coronavirus closures and restrictions in 2020, and the bar struggled to become profitable after that. It did not break even for sure after that, said O'Grady, who left the ownership team in 2022. But many bars and restaurants are coming back to 2019 levels now. Its location, 2036 North Broadway, is near several organizations that provide services to unhoused residents downtown. Encampments have lined the streets near the bar for years. Their populations grew significantly in recent months, said Coors, one of the owners. Staff frequently witnessed drug use, human waste deposits, and violence nearby, he said. It was a mess, Coors said, and our customers didn't want to walk through it. Coors and other owners requested extra assistance from the city months ago, but struggled to get a response, he said. The city conducted a sweep on September 27th, but the camps returned shortly after that. Mayor Hancock did nothing to address the problem, and the new mayor came in on all these promises of doing it, did one sweep finally after we begged them for two months, and then turned their back on it the next day, Coors said. Mayor Mike Johnston's office said in a statement that teams from the administration met with the owners of the Triangle to listen to concerns and were working to find housing for residents of nearby encampments before the closure announcement. 
Addressing homelessness has been a key issue for the new administration. Johnston declared a state of emergency around the issue and pledged to get 1,000 people off the streets and into housing by the end of the year. Since then, the administration has conducted several large sweeps. While we acknowledge the progress made so far, we also understand the urgency of the situation and are fully aware of the challenges we face in meeting our ambitious goal, a spokesman for Johnston said in a statement. On Thursday, the day of Triangle's closure announcement, the large encampments around the bar had disappeared. The mayor's office did not comment on whether an official sweep took place or what drove the change. Coor said he believed another sweep took place, but he was not optimistic the encampment would stay gone. Past managers said the bar's closure was likely tied to more than just unhoused people living nearby. COVID-19 recovery was slow, and the bar's distant location from other LGBTQ community spaces didn't help, said O'Grady, one of the former co-owners. I think that 95% of unhoused neighbors over there were harmless, and they're just trying to live their lives, he said. There are unhoused people on Colfax. There are unhoused people in Lodo. There are unhoused people everywhere, and other places are thriving again. Other downtown businesses have seen a slow recovery from COVID-19. Foot traffic dropped sharply in 2020, but bounced back to pre-pandemic levels for the first time this summer, according to research from the Downtown Denver Partnership. Downtown Denver's overall pedestrian traffic in July of 2023 was 91% of the overall pedestrian traffic in July of 2019, but the resurgent has been concentrated in a few areas, said Britt Deal with DDP. It tends to be concentrated on the 16th Street Mall and near anchors like Union Station and the Performing Arts Complex, Deal said. Triangle Bar does kind of sit on an island that's not super walkable. Triangle's closure is one example of how the homelessness crisis is impacting business, said Daryl Watson, city councilman for District 9, which includes Triangle. What we are seeing is a reduction of folks going to businesses that are surrounded by encampments, good, bad, or otherwise. That is a fact, Watson said, adding that he plans to announce new targeted grants to help small businesses in similar situations to Triangle. The city is not leading as we should with finding housing and support for folks living unsheltered, but also making sure our businesses and our residents are able to live and thrive in our city, Watson said. Triangle said its closure would last indefinitely, according to its emailed statement. Event and brunch ticket holders will receive refunds. The bar will host a final beer bust on October 8th, starting at noon. We worked hard to provide a safe and welcoming place for all members of our community to celebrate, play, and give back to others for the last six years, despite some tremendous obstacles, the owners wrote in their closure email. Thanks from the bottom of our hearts to those who have supported us through thick and thin. We appreciate you, and we wish you all the best. A trip to Denver's dump inspired a book about humanity's stuff by Kevin Beattie. Back in 2018, archaeologist Chip Colwell joined us on a trip to the Denver Arapaho disposal site, the city's dump, where we stood atop a mountain of trash and waxed poetic about all the stuff we throw away. Landfills are the archaeology of us, he said from the garbage peak. It's our future history. When we met him, 
Colwell was the Denver Museum of Nature and Science's curator of anthropology. He later left the institution to pour his energy into Sapiens, a digital magazine of anthropology he founded in 2016. As someone who studies objects that people have left behind, he's been thinking about deeper questions related to this place. The wasteland of discarded wood, paper, couches, and tires hinted at deeper questions he couldn't ignore. So he started work on a book, a story about our relationship to our beloved objects that spans our entire existence. For me, the seed of it was this mystery of how we, as a species, started out about four million years ago needing nothing at all to survive, he said. And yet here we are, four million years later, just engulfed in things. The clothes we wear, or the houses we live in, or the planes we fly in, glasses, computers, cell phones, sporting equipment. All of it is what makes us human today. So what explains that four million year transformation of going from nothing to everything? He finished the book and next month, the fruit of his labor will be available to buy and then placed on a shelf with all the other books in your collection. It's called So Much Stuff, How Humans Discovered Tools, Invented Meaning, and made more of everything. Colwell traveled the world to dig into this epic tale. He went to Ethiopia, where he learned about, and got to hold, some, some of humanity's first tools, split rocks transformed into axes. This marked the first of three major leaps that we made as we progressed from needing nothing to everything. Tools gave us more means to survive, then shaped us in their image. As we became more and more dependent on things, our bodies themselves began to change, Colwell told us. If you have knives to be able to cut up meat or touch tubers, then you don't need sharp, robust teeth. So there's this fascinating symbiosis between tools and our bodies. The tools begin to shift our own evolution. From there, humanity assigned value to objects, invented things like religion, art, and money. Colwell's second major leap, then began to mass-produce things and value quantity above all else. In so much stuff, Colwell takes readers from that genesis in eastern Africa to Hong Kong, New Zealand, Europe, and, excitingly, to Denver's dump. It's probably no surprise that he found stuff everywhere he went. This is a deeply human phenomenon. No matter where humans live, no matter what condition, everyone Every human needs things to survive, he said. While readers will mostly learn how we got here, Colwell said there was no way to avoid some existential questions. The three leaps that underpin his theory of stuff weren't necessarily all positive. I can't help but ask, but what now? Because we know our world is drowning in trash. We know our oceans are overflowing with plastic. You can't help but then ask the question, what does all this mean? And is this really for the best? He said, it's unavoidable. The environmental crisis is, in essence, a crisis of stuff. It's because of our endless consumption of the world's materials that has led us to this moment. While the archaeologist dips into economic theory, sociology, art history, and philosophy, he said his saga should be accessible to anyone who's interested in human history. It was published by the University of Chicago Press, so it did benefit from a peer review, 
but Colwell said he kept it jargon-free. So much stuff hits booksellers on November 9th. We're proud Denver's garbage played a role in its inception. The following articles are from Westward. Overland becomes latest Denver neighborhood to push back on homeless micro-community by Manito L. Kelty. Yet another Denver neighborhood is opposing a micro-community plan for its area. This time it's Overland, where more than 300 homeless individuals are slated to move into a micro-community at 2301 Santa Fe Drive, which will be sandwiched between homes and the freeway. Residents say they're terrified over the prospect of having such a large collection of homeless people move in at once. The micro-community will host 155 units, with availability for up to two people each, according to Denver City Records. Private facilities such as these, which utilize tiny homes and pallet shelters, are central to Mayor Mike Johnston's House 1000 plan to get 1,000 residents off the streets and into housing by the end of the year. Johnson expects to start moving individuals into planned micro-communities in the coming weeks. The mayor has gotten slapped with repeated criticism in recent weeks by people who feel his House 1000 plan is being carried out with little consideration for the public. Residents in the Golden Triangle have already aired their grievances, both to Johnston's face and behind closed doors, while others in the Holly Hills area have called for the formation of a registered neighborhood organization to oppose a micro-community planned for 5500 East Yale Avenue. Concerns about the size of the micro-community and how the other sites are being spread across the city have been at the top of the complaint list for most of the homeowners that Helene Orr represents as president of the neighborhoods, Neighbors of Overland North and R&O, she says. This particular site is huge, Orr tells Westward. It's a big problem. It's a tough issue. And for it to be successful, there has to be some neighborhood buy-in. And Johnston is really getting off on a bad foot. Although Orr only represents the Overland neighborhood north of Evans Avenue, she says homeowners who live to the south have also voted to oppose the micro-community going up. It's pretty fair to say that the majority of people in the neighborhood are not in favor of it as it stands now, Orr says. It seems like a big burden for us to take on, adds Heather Barnes, an Overland resident. Why place that burden here of that scale when we already have another one in District 7? Right now, District 7 is slated to host a site at 950 Alameda Avenue. Mayor Johnston has claimed that each city council district would host a micro-community, but none have been publicly announced for Districts 1, 2, or 5. In a letter to the mayor last week, Orr pointed out how the distribution of sites is not equitable by any stretch because there are no micro-community sites planned so far for the very wealthy neighborhoods of Denver, Cherry Creek, Country Club, Belcaro, Bonnie Bray, Wash Park, Platt Park. Orr added, If you want neighborhoods to accept and support these sites, We need to see that no neighborhoods are exempt from participating in the solution. Until then, expect to be met with resistance. City officials have not said what the capacity of the other micro-community sites will be. A spokesperson for the Department of Housing Stability tells Westward that the city is still holding a community information meeting for each proposed micro-community prior to any occupation of the site. 
The feedback and other assessments will help inform how many units each site can accommodate, the rep said. A community information meeting at about the Overland site was held on Thursday, September 28th. 